Okay, so we're looking at the last words of Jesus uh, this morning. We just heard them, and I was thinking as I was preparing them, how do they stack up? So I had a look at a few uh, people's uh, famous last words. It was really probably inspired because I always get very amused about Elvis Presley. Uh, His last words were, I'm going to the bathroom uh, to read, actually. Um, Frank Sinatra, his last words apparently were, I'm losing it. So uh, there we go. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. It's quite a complex last sentence, that, and I feel quite sorry for him because he did quite a good painting, didn't he, Mona Lisa? Um, I'm going to say a rude word now, so those of you who are offended, I've got permission off Dave, although he doesn't know what rude word I'm going to say. It's a really bad rude word. It's not, it's just I've never said this word um, in a sermon before, but Louis uh, Marie Therese de Saint Maurice, I don't know who she is, the Comtesse de Versille, apparently... That's what it says here. (laughs) Well, listen to this, what she did. You you won't think that's so bad when she she let one rip um, when she was dying. And she said, good, a woman who can fart is not dead. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's true, but... (laughs) Sir Arthur Conan Doyle... um, he, apparently he wrote Sherlock Holmes, but all I know is his statue's over, over there. Uh, he died uh, when he was 71 in his garden. He turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful, and then clutched a hand and died. That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, not for his wife. She's probably fairly sad. Um, Groucho Marx, when he was dying, uh, let out one last quip. He said, this is no way to live. Winston Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. That's brilliant, isn't it? I'm bored with it. And uh, Steve Jobs, uh, sister Mona, uh, said that his last uh, words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. And Bo Diddley, I doubt many of you have heard of Bo Diddley unless you're in the 80s, but anyway, he, he's a great guitar player. He played a square guitar, very good. And um, he died giving a thumbs up as he was listening. That would be cool to die like that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, listening to the song Walk Around Heaven, and his last word, too, was wow. So it's great. I'm glad Bo Diddley's up there. That would be brilliant. Um, and Jesus' last words actually are wow words. They're incredible. Some of the most important words actually he ever said we've heard this morning. They're words famously called uh, the Great Commission. And in these words, he was giving his followers, not just at the time, but across the whole of history, a purpose and identity and a future. And they're words which put mission and evangelism right at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus is about. Words which communicate to us there's no excuse for a church not being involved in mission and evangelism. Or words, uh, in other words, doing the work of God and communicating his love is the key thing 
we as a church, the church across the whole world, uh, should be doing. In his book about Luke's gospel, Wilkins says, the five short verses that comprise this great commission passage are among the most important to establish the ongoing agenda of the church throughout the ages. He says these words are a clarion call. These words become, um, so these become words that we as his followers are called to hear and obey. These words, if you like, are the job description for the church. These words show the church what it is we are to do. So if you've got your apps open, your Bible apps, or your, if you're old school, your real Bible, open Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the Great Commission. Now, as with many great things in the Bible, this reading is set up uh, on a mountain. This means it's important. Moses got the commandments of a mountain. Elijah met God up on a mountain when the still, small voice whispered into his ear. And I'm so glad that still, small voice is still whispering today. I hope you know it. And Matthew continues this theme on the mountain. In fact, mountains feature a lot in Matthew's gospel because uh, the temptations, a key passage earlier on in the gospel, were done up a mountain. The Sermon on the Mount, the clue is on the mount, it was on a mountain. Uh, The transfiguration was on a mountain. The final discourse was on the Mount of Olives. And now in this parting scene, the goodbye scene, he's on a mountain again in verse 16. This is a setting which signifies what I'm about to do, what's about to be said is important. What will happen next is significant. Sit up and take notice. This is an event to be seen, to be understood. This is a mountaintop experience. This is an event which has a past, present and future implications. It's important. It's to be mass advertised. It's to be marketed. It's to carry on. But are we really ready to think about his significance? Because I love coming to this church. It's lovely and comfortable. It sort of feels good. This certainly feels, feels good. The seats feel good. It's a comfortable place uh, to be. Life is easier, actually, if we keep the Great Commission hidden. Uh, life is easier uh, if, this, if we don't sort of really take it too serious. It's much less complicated, actually, uh, if we don't take the Great Commission seriously or just play lip service to it. Oh, yeah, that's important. And then do nothing about it. Or or we try to make it something it's not. Perhaps it's easier if we think of life, instead of the Great Commission, we have the Great Omission. You know, we only have to lose a C and we're we're not too bad. It's not too bad. Um, We can just be nice, comfortable and worthy club. We could ignore all this stuff. We could have nice, safe, worship we could have those comfortable prayers and we could just get Dave up to do a nice motivational stroking our back sermon uh, week by week um, you know it'd be easier just to just ignore this just come to church and feel good and then then go home so I ask really are we ready to engage do we really want to enter into following Jesus in the way he's describing here are we happy to let this great commission impact on us because if we do it's something which challenges everything and all of who we are because the great commission actually is like a great big mirror which Jesus is holding up and he's shining it into the church he's shining it into our church he's shining into p's and g's he's shining it into our lives and Jesus is telling us here what his followers are about and what uh, they are to do Jesus is setting up his church he's setting up his ministry here this is what we are meant to be, the Great Commission. All his life and all his death and all his resurrection has been leading up to this point. 
Up to now, it's been about Jesus and what, he is, and what he's doing, and now it's going to be about the church and what the church is doing. So we're ready to engage with it because it changes everything. Because this is Jesus' dream. This is, if you like, his vision statement for his church. There's a book called The Leadership Challenge by James uh, Cozies and Barry Posner. And uh, their big idea in the book is every organisation, every social movement begins with a dream. The dream or vision is the force that invents the future. So, for example, the makeup company Avon, I don't use their stuff much, but the reason you'll see is in their vision statement why I don't. Because they want to be a company that best understands and satisfies the product, service, and self-fulfillment needs of women globally. So it's clear what they want to do. Amazon, to be the most customer-centric company, to build a place where people can come and find and discover anything they want to buy online. Harley Davidson, I can dream, uh, is to fulfill dreams through the experience of motorcycling. I like that one. And Johnson & Johnson, this is their sort of hip replacement department. And uh, their, 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 their vision is to restore the joy, joy of motion. I think they do quite a good job there. A bit painful initially. And Toys R Us, this is a great one, to put joy in kids' hearts and a smile on parents' faces. I don't know. I've gone to Toys R Us and I've... I, I don't know if it's produced joy, but it's never produced a smile in my life. But anyway. Um, the Great Commission... There are other toy shops as well. Um, the Great Commission is Jesus' dream. It's Jesus' vision. And it's what he wants his followers' dreams and visions to be too. So it's as if this morning he's calling out across history and he's saying, is this your dream? Or do, really, do you just want that nice, comfortable P's and G's with the nice furnishings kind of church? As a community, is this Great Commission, is, is this what's driving us, the Great Commission? Is it our passion as a community? What's our dream? What are we about? And what are we meant to do? What? And to help, Jesus, I think, in this, lays out an agenda for us. If you like, an order of play, play a code of practice we can measure ourselves against. And these five verses can be distilled, I think, into seven things, seven purposes, seven priorities, and seven jobs. And I'm going to get on with it really quickly. The first thing about the Great Commission is it comes out of worship. The commission is set in the context of worship. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is absolutely significant. Great movements of God are always born in worship. They're not manufactured or planned. You can't say, right, we're going to have a great movement of God and this is what's going to happen. It doesn't work like that because it comes out of people connecting very deeply with God uh, through um, worship. Look at any revival event or any great awakening event of the Holy Spirit. It's all, or any movement of God, it comes from worship. That's the consistent thing. People falling in love with God and then being released by God. Rick Warren, that great uh, Californian church leader, talks about the intimate connection between worship and evangelism. And he says that worship provides the motivation for evangelism. The Great Commission flows from worship. Our communication of God comes out of worship of God. Now every morning, Monday, not every morning, every Monday morning in the office, the first thing we do as the clergy team is go and have a bacon sandwich. 
Um, although I must admit all the other three, I think I'm the only one holding on to that because the other three are more into granola and yogurt and all that type of stuff, which I'm not sure if that's food, but they think it is. <laughs> anyway, so we go and have that and uh, I'm quite happy because I have my bacon sandwich and they're all a bit depressed because they're being healthy, but they're worth, you know, they've got that worthy, I'm worthy, I'm very worthy, I, I'm eating healthily, whereas I, I just say I'm happy and <laughs> it wins. I think Christianity is about joy, you know. Anyway, but after that, we go and have our worship meeting, and basically, it's worship planning, it's called, but, uh, so we have that, and we sit around Dave's big executive desk, it's brilliant, and uh, so it is good, I've, scra- I've written my name in it, he doesn't know, but, <laughs> so, and we, we, sit, we, we sit down, and we spend quite a bit of time just reviewing what went on yesterday and then we think about what we want to happen uh, next week and we, we, we think ahead and the thing is for us worship is really important it's not just that you have a nice experience today I hope you do I hope you love being here I hope you feel really welcome and this is a great place but for us that whilst we want want that to happen the key thing we want out of worship is for us all to meet with Jesus and to worship him and be so inspired by him and so thrilled by him that we just leave this place wanting to do the work he's calling us to do, wanting to try and live out the Great Commission. And it's not just on our own, because on our own, I bet many of us feel feeble failures when it comes to the Great Commission. But this wasn't just given to us on our own, it's given to us as a community. As a community, we want to be sort of the, live out the Great Commission within Edinburgh. And so we plan our worship and we think about it, because that's what we want the fruit to be. We want people to fall in love with God week by week and then take their love of God out with them just quite uh, naturally. Worship should enliven our love of God so significantly that we just can't help but reach out and communicate your life. So mission and evangelism, the Great Commission, is just that natural outpouring of worship. What I love most of all, though, about verse 17 is that some doubted. I love that, that that's in the Bible. This isn't a smooth, lovely little document. It's got some doubted. What, why is that in there? I think it's in there because it's completely brilliant and completely honest. The word doubt here, in the Greek, it's difficult to know. Some, some of the words in Greek are a bit obscure. We don't quite know what they mean. But it could mean hesitate, and I like that as well. Some hesitated as uh, they were there worshipping. It's as though there's a bit of uncertainty in the disciples' mind. As with anything of God... He just copes with people as they come to him. He accepts sometimes we find it hard to believe. He knows there can be a tension in us, especially if we haven't quite uh, worked it out. And yet he still accepts our flawed and fumbling worship. I often say it starts of uh, when I'm leading service, it says I'm leading, that I just simply say that God loves it that we're here. No matter how we're feeling, God loves it that we're here. He loves it that you've chosen to come. Even if you're doubting, God loves it that you've brought your worship to him. And uh, Jesus loved it that the disciples, despite their doubts, still chose to worship him. He still spoke out his words of commission to those who doubted, and he invited them to be part of the kingdom work. Doubts do not 
exclude you. Jesus copes with them. He always has done and he always will. He takes us where we are and he still invites us into his mission. Second thing the Great Commission is about is it's about Jesus. It says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth is given to me. This, this verse for me is like a shifting verse where Matthew is taking everything. He's been very slowly revealing to us across the whole gospel. He's taken a long time, 28 and a half chapters, to reveal this Jesus to us. And then in a sentence, he reveals it, what it's all about. He fully explains what it's all about. Quite simply, from now on, everything is about Jesus. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I love the 24-7 Pete Gregg, who's preaching. You're, you're in the wrong place this morning. You should be over at Central because Pete Gregg's here. But uh, I love his 24-7 um, uh, sort of vision statement, which says, quite simply, it is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is the point where Jesus reveals it. He says, it's all about me. It's all about Jesus. The secret to life is revealed and declared openly in these verses. When Jesus uh, was tempted by the devil in Matthew 4.8, uh, he was offered all the authority. The devil said to him, you can have all authority. But Jesus knew it was impossible then. It was wrong. It was manipulative for him to take authority then. Because he hadn't saved the world, he had to go through his death and his resurrection before that's possible. And now is the time where Jesus has the authority because he has defeated death and released life. And he's released a way for everyone to know God. So Jesus takes his place right at the centre of the church and uh, what it is to do. So the church becomes all about Jesus and it becomes all about following him. Jesus is our vision, our purpose, our identity. His death and resurrection give him all the authority. So it's now all about Jesus's love, life, light, power, beauty, kindness, grace, hope, kingdom, justice, mercy, forgiveness, second chance and joy. A church devoid of Jesus is a faulty church. A church full of Jesus is what it is all about. This is why we talk so much about Jesus, because it is all about him. The secret to life is Jesus, and Jesus is declaring it loud and clear as he prepares to offer, utter this great commission. So the third thing I need to say about the Great Commission is it's about going everywhere. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, lots of people, that they say to me, and you hear it in the, in the media, they say Christianity is a private faith. Certainly, uh, conservative MPs say it a lot when people are getting at them about sort of some bit sort of ripping off the poor or all this type of stuff. But, and to some extent, they are right. As followers of Jesus, we have personal encounters with him. And he deals with us all completely personally. That's the amazing uh, thing about it. He deals with us all differently because we are different. We all have unique encounters and relationships with him. But the thing is, it's never so private 
that we keep it to ourselves. It can't be, because Christianity is not a passive thing. The instructions time and time again is to go. It's like, do you remember Murray Walker when he used to do, motor racing used to be good years ago, and there used to be a man called Murray Walker, who's very old now, and he used to be the commentator. At the start of a race, he used to go, 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 and it's tremendously exciting. And Christianity has the same stuff going on. It's a go, go, go faith. There's never any privacy connected to Christianity. It's out in the open whether or not it's liked or not. It is public. And this is uncomfortable. But in this verse, Jesus is taking Christianity out of being just in one particular place at one particular time to being in every particular place at every particular time. Christianity is now in the public arena. It's in every place in our world. It's not just going to be held by special people with a special secret. It's good news for everyone and good news everywhere. Now, I've got a friend called Simon who finds this uh, a a wee bit uncomfortable, that it's a uh, go-active sort of uh, uh, faith. He's an introvert, would like to sit and think for a long time about Christianity rather than go out there and do stuff. He's very well educated and he's got a very profound and wonderful faith. If you want to know a few things about God, go and ask him. But he finds it hard to be totally open about faith publicly. So he was on a conference a few months ago, and he was on the evangelism stream. He was put in that somehow. And he went to go to one of these dreaded things where you go and hear about evangelism, but you don't just go and hear about evangelism. You then have to spend the afternoon doing evangelism. And, and the delegates were given three questions to ask. They had to go out to the community. They had to go and ask three things. So they go and meet random strangers this this does sound terrible you know I dare you to do it but uh, it does sound quite hard you have to be courageous but it, it, the three questions are, are is firstly you'd ask them what do you need and then you'd obviously listen to them and they'd say oh I don't know what I need a Porsche or whatever they might say I don't know but then 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 you'd say after that because you know the the, the first initial response isn't really the true response so you go no what do you really need and then people would open up about their families and their lives and things like that that was that was the idea and then then you'd say to them after you listen you'd say shall I tell you what you need a bold question and they, they'd often go yes and then you just tell them the gospel so he Simon had to go and do this and he was going out on the streets thinking oh, I hate this he, he was using another word I can't use in the, the sermon I really hate this why have I done this this is dreadful but he had to go and do it and so he, he, he went up to somebody and he, he asked them the question and he, he followed the pattern and he ended up talking about his faith and finding out the person was completely interested in what he had to say to him just because he went out of the comfort zone, because he took the go, go, go seriously. Now, I'm not advocating a model of evangelism like that, although it might work for some of us, but, but it's interesting that actually when we go and when we put ourselves on the line, we can have conversations and sometimes we might need to uh, take ourselves out of that sort of timid zone and build up our confidence and our courage. I'm, I'm, doing, um, I'm going on a uh, sort of training three days with John Sturrock, who always, uh, he's a member of our congregation and uh, he always impresses me whenever I'm in a meeting with John because he'll always talk a bit about his faith. He just does it. He does it. He's not doing it sort of intentionally because of his faith, he'll just talk. So if he's read his morning meditations, he'll often say, oh, I was meditating on this this morning. And gently, he just introduces Jesus into the middle of a room full of business people and lawyers and who else. I just love the way 
that is done. And maybe somehow we need to work it out. So we're supposed to go and we're supposed to, to do something. We're supposed to, it's supposed to be, it doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable because it is a bit uncomfortable. That's what it's at, like and we need courage and we need confidence. But we go everywhere, and this is the, the fourth bit about it, to make disciples. Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples. Now there's loads, oh, you go into Dave's office, he's got a section called Discipleship, and the floor is dipping under the weight of books uh, there. It's, it's, people have written tons and tons and tons of stuff about uh, discipleship. So go and make disciples, said Jesus, so you write a book about it. But anyway, and um, so I just want to say, a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. A disciple is a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. And Jesus is saying, go and make disciples, go and make Christians. That is what he's saying here. And it must be said, the first disciples were pretty amazing at going and making uh, disciples. And in fact, the rise of Christianity is one of the most remarkable uh, things. From just being these few people on a mountaintop to becoming a world's major faith in just uh, a couple of centuries was amazing. And in Acts, we actually do see how people initially responded very quickly and warmly uh, to the gospel and chose to follow Jesus. But also we see how very quickly the church uh, became persecuted and how difficult it was to be a Christian and how the first disciples were generally all of them were martyred for their faith which makes me think Jesus completely rose again you wouldn't die for your faith if you if you hadn't met that risen Lord so they convinced me that Jesus is is alive still today so they they knew how difficult it was was to be a Christian but despite despite it all the church kept growing despite all the sort of Roman government trying to to stop it it kept on growing and sociology sociologist Rodney Stark has written a book called The Rise of Christianity and he talks about how Christianity rose from arose from just that such a small group to become the dominant force of the Roman Empire in this short time and very interestingly he talks about factors which could have contributed to this great movement towards being a follower of Jesus. He, in his book he speaks of two great epidemics which were experienced in the first uh, few centuries. And if those who were affected by these epidemics were cared for, there was a good chance they would survive. But often when a member of the family uh, contracted the disease, the other family members left that person uncared for and left their homes for places which were not affected by the disease. The Christians, however, didn't do this. The Christians cared for their own family members and also cared for those who were left behind by their family members. Stark points out that the willingness to suffer in order to care for the sick had a part to play in large numbers of people in the Roman Empire turning to Christ. So by simply following the Jesus method of love and care, his method of being a disciple of love and care, the church was able to grow and become a dominant force. Making disciples is never just about words. Evangelism is never just about words. Making disciples involves much love and care. And I find um, this following quote from Martin Luther King quite a helpful quote when he just says, sorry, it's Martin Luther. It just says, it's the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. And that is what the early Christians were doing. 
actively making disciples starts with love and care. And David, from uh, my home village in Knoll, was completely transformed when the village started to bring... His wife had been poorly in hospital, and members of the church started to bring casseroles and all of the sort of you've been sick food round uh, to the family for a few weeks just to keep them going. And it was out of that love where he said, well, I've just seen Jesus completely in this. And it draws people in. Love and care are fantastic in doing it. And the early church discovered this and did it. But the Great Commission uh, goes on. It starts then to talk about baptising and when Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I could go on a long time about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not going to do that in this sermon, but you need to know this is a very important verse for all of those who, of you who like to know these things. It is an important verse for the Trinity, Jesus uttering the Trinity. But the thing is, Great Commission people are about actively making disciples it's about transforming people's lives. And as lives are transformed, a response is made. It's about helping people to repent, which literally means just turning their lives around and following Jesus. And the sign of that response, the sign that actually now I belong to Jesus, is that you get baptised. Being baptised or dunked, which is the proper English expression for baptism, is basically, it's quite, when you think about it, it's a very odd thing. It's about drowning somebody underwater. It's about dunking them right underwater and uh, drowning them. And, uh, and the theological term is going to death in the waters of baptism and then rising out of the waters to new life. And Christians are meant to enter into that life so we die to our old self and we rise to the Jesus self. So the Great Commission isn't about being nice and doing nice things. It's about people coming to a point where they can look at our love and concern and hear what we have to say and wonder what motivates us. And then we can say, as they ask us, well, why are you doing this? We can then say, well, actually, my story is I love Jesus and I'm doing it because I want to show you Jesus in the way I'm acting. I want to tell you that Jesus is the best thing in my life. And then you can start a discussion about why he is the best thing in their lives and tell them how he can become part of their lives and that he will transform them and forgive them if they turn to him. Last night at Soul Food, we, we never have a, a sermon at Soul Food, but I always remind people it's our lives which are the sermon. And as you sit with the guests, I always say, if you get an opportunity to share your faith, use that opportunity. We all have a story to tell. Use it when you're given it, because people might need to hear this news and they might want to come to a place where they can respond to Jesus and get baptised and turn to him. Next thing about the Great Commission is he, Jesus is about teaching, and Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you. A great mistake people make about discipleship, particularly in the evangelical part of the church, is that they link discipleship all to teaching, so it becomes all about knowledge, so the people with the greatest knowledge are the greatest uh, disciples uh, in, in the church. And so church becomes about amassing as much information as you can about the faith. So it's about sort of chat shops and listening shops. And we forget to go as we do all of this teaching and everything like that. The, we forget the call to get involved, the call to love and care, because we want to know more and more. Teaching isn't how you determine a disciple. A well-taught Christian 
isn't necessarily a proper disciple. A disciple is much broader and bigger than that. However, Jesus, right at this heart of his commission, places tremendous weight on teaching. So a key work of the church is to teach. As St. Paul would say, help Christians reach maturity in Christ. Interesting thing here is, Jesus is saying to the disciples to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, teach about my priorities. And this is in Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew has written about Jesus' priorities. And interestingly, in the early church, Matthew's Gospel was seen as the handbook um, where, of discipleship. This is what was used because there's some very clear teaching on Jesus' priorities in Matthew's Gospel. And that was used as the launch pad for understanding who uh, Jesus is. So you just need to read the Beatitudes. You just need to read the parables about the kingdom and those intimate conversations Jesus had with his disciples uh, in, in Matthew. And you start to get the secret to Christian life and what Jesus is all about. And you start to learn the priorities of Jesus and what he means and who he was and what he hopes uh, from his followers. So many of us become underconfident here because we look at all these great learned disciples and think, oh, we've got nothing to do here. Let's turn it on its head. That's not what it's about. We might feel we're not articulate enough, but we are articulate enough if we know Jesus. The, the, the demands of Jesus aren't degree-level expositions of what the faith is all about. The demands of Jesus are for us just to share our lives, our love, our faith uh, with others. He wants us to know that we're loved. He wants us to know that we're forgiven. And he wants us to know there are second chances. He wants us to know that he has a priority and a real care uh, for the poor. He wants us to know that his gospel is for the broken, for the widow, and for those who feel unworthy. He wants us to know all about the upside-down kingdom, where the first will be last and the last will be first. And that's what we communicate in our faith. That's what we learn, and that's what it means to be a disciple. Christianity isn't some made-up whim where we just go with our feelings. It has a very solid base to it. Within it is the heart of God. And Matthew is as good a place as any to read if we feel unconfident about our faith. But a key thing to being a Christian is we become lifelong learners. It doesn't just stop once we've got the basics, but it continues and it continues and it gets deeper and it gets deeper as we take it more and more seriously. And as we do it and as we continue to learn, we continuously become overawed and uh, overwhelmed by all the wonderful things it means to have Jesus as your saviour. And finally, the final thing about the Great Commission is this offer of a relationship. Well, it's not an offer of relation, it's just a relationship is there for us. The very final words of Jesus are, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So all of this stuff I've been talking about, about going and being and caring and stuff like that, we do with Jesus. Jesus is with us as we do it. He's not some far-off, aloof God. He's there with us in the situations 
motivating us, encouraging us, inspiring us as we go along. Here's just a prayer way. Sometimes things overwhelm me and then I pray about it and Jesus seems to come into the situation and I'm able to do things because that is what the Great Commission is about. It's as if Jesus holds our hands through it. When we forget it, it becomes tough. When he's there with us, it's still tough, but it becomes a little bit more doable. His presence and love are always with us. And we can't get away from it. His presence is always there for us. Sometimes we might move away from him, but he always moves towards us to help us in what it's all about. So this is what the church is about, the Great Commission. This is our calling. This is perhaps one of the most key bits of uh, scripture. Our purpose is determined from these few verses. Let's pray and encourage one another. You know, it's not just my task, it's all of our tasks to do this. Let's get on the pitch and work out how we can all do this together. And let's pray for God's blessing as we're working it out. Libby.